Okay. Good afternoon and uh, welcome to the uh, forum at the Harvard School of Public Health. I'm Scott Malone. I'm a correspondent with Reuters News here in Boston. And I'll be moderating our discussion today on uh, gun violence and public health. It's a conversation presented as a uh, collaboration of the Harvard School of Public Health and Reuters News. Uh, obviously, we're here today um, in the wake of last month's tragic shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, Connecticut, which left 28 people dead and has uh, refocused the nation's attention on gun control and gun regulation. Uh, while the massacre was not the nation's deadliest mass shooting, that um, sad honor goes to uh, the 32 people who died at a gunman's hands at Virginia Tech in 2007. Never before had so many victims been so young. Uh, 20 first graders, all aged 6 and 7, died in the attack. The weapon shooter Adam Lanza used an AR-15 type assault rifle, was legally purchased and registered to his mother, Nancy, who became his first victim. The tragedy prompted President Barack Obama to appoint a White House panel to come up with new ways to curtail gun violence, saying that as a nation we're not doing enough to prevent shootings. Um, on average, 30 Americans die in gun-related homicides each day. Uh, but it'll be an uphill battle. The Second Amendment of the U.S. Constitution protects the right to gun ownership, and a week after the shooting, the head of the powerful National Rifle Association came out swinging on behalf of gun rights saying that the news media and violent video games shared blame for the deaths and proclaiming that the only thing that stops a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. Americans as a population remain conflicted in their views on guns. A recent USA Today Gallup poll found that 58% back tougher gun laws, but a narrow 51% majority oppose any moves to outlaw assault weapons. Uh, gun enthusiasts' commitment to buying and owning weaponry seems to have surged in the wake of the Newtown tragedy. Uh, the FBI reported a record high 2.8 million background checks on potential gun buyers in December, the month after the shooting. Uh, today's event will be uh, webcast by the, public school, the Harvard School of Public Health and Reuters, and both institutions will be live blogging the proceedings. Um, with that, let me introduce our guests. Uh, to my immediate left, we have David Hemingway. Uh, David is Professor of Health Policy and Management at the Harvard School of Public Health and Director of the Harvard Injury Control Research Center. He has written widely on preventing injuries of all kinds, from firearms and suicide to child abuse and motor vehicle accidents. Um, next to uh, David is Felton Earls. Felton is a professor of child psychiatry at Harvard Medical School and research professor of human behavior and development here at the Harvard School of Public Health. Among his many achievements is running a 15-year research project in Chicago that examined the consequences of children's exposure to community and family violence, which remains one of the largest studies on youth de development ever undertaken. Uh, to his left is Lawrence Tribe, professor of constitutional law at the Harvard Law School and the Carl M. Loeb University professor. Uh, he's one of only 50 people to have held that title during Harvard's long and illustrious history. His former students and research assistants at Harvard Law School included President Obama, Chief Justice Roberts, uh, Justice Elena Kagan, uh, and he served briefly in the Obama administration in 2010. He has also written and lectured widely on Second Amendment issues. And then batting cleanup is uh, David King. David is senior lecturer in public policy at the Harvard Kennedy School, where he faces the challenging task of running freshman orientation for the newly elected lawmakers who attend the university's bipartisan program for newly elected members of U.S. Congress, which he directs. He also chaired a task force on election reform after the 2000 Bush-Gore election. Each of our guests will make brief opening comments, and then we'll turn it over to the floor for you 
questions. We'll be taking questions both from, from people here in the room in Boston and from online. And uh, with that, I'll turn it over to Professor uh, Hemingway. So I'm just going to want to say three things. First is uh, that the United States has a very uh, horrific gun problem. Uh, not only are 85 people a day dying from guns uh, from all sorts of injuries, but that compared to the other developed countries, uh, we are just doing terribly. Uh, we are a nation which does not have more crime or more violence. We're an average country in terms of uh, uh, assaults, in terms of robbery, in terms of homicide, uh, and so forth. But w compared to these other developed countries, we uh, have by far the most guns, the weakest gun laws, and so many more homicides. Let me give you just a feeling for the differences. Uh, if you look at our 5 to 14 year olds, uh, these are K through 8, it's hard to blame the victim here. Uh, a typical child in the United States doesn't have just like 20% more likelihood of being murdered with a gun or 50% more likelihood or two times more likelihood but 13 times more likelihood of being murdered with a gun than children in uh, Japan or uh, Italy or any other uh, industrialized country. Our non-gun homicide rate for these children is about the average. Uh, same way for suicide. A child in the United States is eight times more likely to find his dad's gun and kill himself uh, than a child uh, in these other developed countries. And our non-gun suicide rate for our children is average. Our uh, unintentional gun death rate is 10 times greater. So we have a, an, an enormous, enormous problem. Uh, there are lots of things we can do. We're going to talk about a, a number of sensible gun laws, which uh, the vast majority of Americans favor, even most gun owners favor. Uh, one of the things I want to emphasize is that there's lots of other things we can do without laws. We really have to change social norms uh, in this country about guns and how we treat guns and think about guns. Uh, and finally, uh, from a personal perspective, um, I think it's really important to have good data and good research to understand what's going on and unfortunately our federal government makes it very hard to get good data and deliberately uh, has basically uh, eliminated almost all funding for gun research and this really has to change if we're going to make a difference. Uh, I think now is our window of opportunity to, to, to do something. It's basically if not now, when uh, are we going to ever do anything uh, and I just think um, God forgive us if we do nothing and let our children continue to die. Okay. Professor Earls. Well, my interest is similar to yours, the socialization of children and the integration of children in the larger society, and how norms and customs and traditions are passed on, uh, how they're communicated, how they're passed on, how they're learned. I mean, what we know about violent behavior is that it's a learned behavior. It's not genetic. It's not, doesn't originate someplace, someplace in the brain. It's reflected in the brain, the same way it's reflected in the spleen. But it's not caused by uh, genes or brain mechanisms that drive this violent behavior. So I think that's a very important starting point. And over the past four or five decades, we've done a tremendous job of of changing social norms on child abuse. We have very good data that child abuse and physical aggression towards children is a cause of those children becoming aggressive and depressed even. Now what we're doing is shifting the attention away from, not away from, from child abuse, but towards more broadly speaking exposure to violence. We, we know how to measure it very carefully. And we know how to look for physical health as well as mental health consequences. So in the work I do, we've seen depression, aggression as consequences of exposure to violence. 
We've also seen obesity and asthma rates go up as, as a function of exposure to violence. Uh, now, the integration part is that we're trying to get children's points of view about the culture in which they live in. And the occasions where we've had to have children in protected circumstances where they can talk about this have been extremely revealing. I mean, they know a lot about guns. They know a lot about violence. They know a lot about what motivates people, jealousy and revenge and so forth and so on. And so, just to conclude my brief remarks, this is a multi-generational problem. It's a whole society problem. And the gun laws are reflective of what goes on in the normative structure and the, of the culture of the United States. And th it's going to take generations, I think, to change it, but we're starting. We have to start. Pastor Trad. Well, it may, <coughs> may take generations to change it, but the window of opportunity <coughs> may not last generations. Yeah. And I strongly believe that we have such a window. It doesn't mean that I'm necessarily optimistic that in an otherwise paralyzed Congress with a very powerful National Rifle Association and with a very small minority that feels intensely that we ought not to impose any limits on firearms ownership or the ownership or taxation of artillery, uh, we face a very uphill challenge. Now, you've heard from uh, two experts in public health and psychiatry, and there's no doubt that the problem, properly understood, is a sweeping and holistic one. Uh, there's no one thing we can do that will suddenly, like to pardon the metaphor, a silver bullet, uh, solve the problem. But my fundamental belief is that we cannot let the perfect become the enemy of the good. It may be that unless we change everything, we will not achieve anything like the progress we want to achieve. But if we wait until we can change everything, then we will surely change nothing. Uh, we are not a more bloodthirsty country culturally than other developed countries. Uh, it's true that there are studies suggesting that we addict our kids to violence through violent videos and in other ways. Uh, but violent videos are not uniquely available in the United States. What distinguishes the United States from other developed countries is our astonishingly relaxed and loophole-ridden laws regulating who may own a gun, whether the gun may be carried in a concealed way, how powerful the gun may be, whether it can be a military-style weapon, whether it can be equipped with the sort of artillery that rips children's bodies to shreds, not just in one shot, but in dozens of shots in a few seconds. That's what makes the United States unique. Now, some say it's unique constitutionally, that we alone have a constitutional right to own and uh, carry firearms. But oddly enough, I think it's a mistake to blame our Constitution in general, or the Second Amendment in particular, or the Supreme Court's rather bizarre interpretation of the Second Amendment even more particularly for our current problem. Uh, if anything, I believe that we were handed uh, an unintended gift in the fight for firearms regulation when the Supreme Court rendered its decisions in 2008 and 2010 affirming a widely held belief 
that the Second Amendment protects an individual right to bear arms and not simply a right to have an organized militia. I say that because it is no longer possibly with, possible with any credibility uh, for the NRA or those who say that any gun regulation will put us on a slippery slope at the bottom of which Big Brother will be knocking on your door and knocking your door down and ripping the guns from your homes. Uh, that can't be argued anymore. The Second Amendment provides a decisive response. The government is not constitutionally capable of disarming everybody, of taking away the right to have a handgun at home for self-defense. So that argument is gone, the slippery slope argument that we can't have sensible gun regulation because it will lead to senseless and tyrannical gun regulation. And that, um, that, that point might lead nicely into, into Professor Good. King and your experience with, with lawmakers. Mm. It's nice being here. <laughs> I'm, I'm learning a lot, so I, in many ways, wish I could be out there in the audience with you as well. One thing that, one word that you've all used in common is problem, problem, and problem. And in the world of politics, we usually live um, with conditions. And politics is often the art of turning a condition and redefining it as a problem. Um, child abuse was seen for a long time as a condition that government ought not to be involved in until there was a crisis and a moment of opportunity where it was redefined uh, as a problem in the late 1800s. We have a condition of gun violence. That's true. Is it a problem? Probably. Uh, certainly it seems to be, and this is a window of opportunity for activists really to act. So one thing I want you to keep in mind is what does it take for a condition to be redefined as a problem? There's a lot that we can say about that. I have two other things. One is the history of gun control legislation in the United States. The first hundred years or so of our 130 years of our country, these were focused at the state and at the very local levels. Um, the Constitution applies to federal laws, yet we had at a very local level gun control regulations in the early 1800s, uh, limiting handguns, for example. Uh, the founders were used to long guns and not handguns. Limiting in the 1830s the uh, Bowie knife. Uh, so at the state and local level we had a history of gun control. In 1934 then the federal government uh, becomes involved, reacting very specifically to the surge of violence during the Prohibition era. Uh, and then enacted um, uh, controls against Tommy guns, against sawed-off sawed shotguns, and against silencers. Um, it was reinforced in 1938. In 1968, the modern era of gun control was um, expanding legislation to restrict the mentally ill and uh, drug abusers from having access to guns. That was reacting to the assassinations of Senator Kennedy and of uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Um, a national registry was put in place at that point, uh, but in subsequent legislation, especially in 1986, it, the federal government was prohibited from maintaining a national registry. They could have a database of people who had were had crimes or who were mentally ill, but they were prohibited from having a national registry. And there have been, you know, tugs and flows ever since. Um, my 
belief is that we're not going to make a lot of progress in Congress anytime soon on gun control. I think it is, tends to be viewed as a condition and not necessarily widely as a problem that we know how to act upon. And then the third point I want to make fairly quickly at this point is that there's a difference between preferences and intensities. Most Americans, when asked in proper ways, uh, support certain limitations on who can have guns. Crazy people shouldn't have guns. Um, they accept that the governments ought to have uh, a standardized way of reporting and doing background checks. Americans overwhelmingly think that private gun shows ought to be restricted and have gun uh, background checks as well. But the intensity of these preferences are not evenly held. And think about it in terms of most people you know. There are folks who are absolutists on the Second Amendment who think that they absolutely cannot go down the slippery slope of having stricter gun control laws. Then there are most Americans who think that we ought to have some more gun control laws. And for them, it's issue 9 or 10 or 20. It's down there with campaign finance reform. It's down there with making safer child seats. And for the folks who are fighting against stiffer gun control laws, it's issue number one or issue number two. My question to you is, what's a democracy supposed to do? Is a democracy supposed to reflect the majority opinion, or should a democracy also weigh the intensity of people's preferences? We have a system that weighs the intensity of people's preferences. Um, so it's not a simple up or down vote. Part of our preferences as a society are reflected in how we fund candidates and campaigns. Ninety-six percent of the funding that went towards gun control um, measures went to Republicans in the last election cycle. The National Rifle Association's Independent Expenditure Group gave out $7.44 million in the last two years for federal elections. Out of all of that money, $7.44 million, only $23,000 was spent in favor of Democratic candidates. It's an uneven playing field in terms of who's organized and the partisan balance. But again, it comes to intensity and preferences. So Thank a challenging you. political environment. Um, with that, we're going to open it up. Uh, first, we'll take some questions from here in the room. Um, and I'll just ask you to wait until somebody, they are, there are microphones going around, and that will allow the, uh, the folks listening to the webcast to, uh, to hear you. Thank you to the panelists for your sharing your perspective on this issue. Um, I have a question for Dr. Hemingway, which is, would you be able to discuss some of the social norms approaches, non-legislative approaches to work on this problem, given what's been said about the difficulty of pursuing this through Congress? Not that we shouldn't also look at that. Thank you. Um, I, I think a key thing to recognize is that all groups, if we're going to make a difference, need to get involved. Uh, foundations have to start funding this. Um, women's groups have to say this is a major issue. Children's uh, advocacy groups have to say this is a major issue. The media has to change the way it reports. Uh, and also, I would argue that gun owners have to change a little about their social norms. And two areas I would talk about gun owners is one has to do with gun storage. Uh, we know gun storage, if you store your guns improperly, this can lead to major social problems in your community. Uh, and too many people don't bother to store their guns properly and, and, and then they get stolen or used. 
badly. A second thing I would like to see is uh, at this school we've had the designated driver campaign which had a tremendous effect on uh, drunk driving and uh, I would like to see a change made so uh, similar to uh, Friends Don't Let Friends Drive Drunk which is that um, if you are in a situation where you know your gunner friend uh, isn't going through a bad patch, he's had a divorce, he's um, drinking, he's acting a little crazy, it should be your responsibility to you should take it on yourself to help him get rid of his gun for a little while till he feels better. And I think uh, one of the things that could have happened in Sandy Hook, if that had been the social norm, uh, this mother might have gotten rid of the gun herself or her friends could have said, look, you're 20-year-old. He's not doing well. This is not a good time to have guns around the house. Maybe in a year or two, we'll have a girlfriend and everything will be fine. And if they had gotten uh, the gun out of the house, I think the suicide and most of these horrific shootings are suicides uh, would have been averted. And I think all these children would still be alive. Anybody else want to take a crack at that? Can I just uh, <clears throat> add to that, that the social norm that we studied in Chicago was collective efficacy. And what it means is the willingness of people, neighbors in this case, because we did it neighborhood by neighborhood, the willingness of people to intervene in the lives of other people in the neighborhood, children, old, older people, and so forth. And what we found was a disconnection between social class and collective efficacy, such that there were poor communities that had high collective efficacy, some, and wealthy communities, middle-class communities that had average or below-average collective efficacy. Collective efficacy turned out to be a better predictor of violence in those neighborhoods than any other characteristic we could find. So I think one social norm is around civic engagement and how to encourage that and how to promote that. I mean, we certainly said that after 9-11, you know, look around, be alert. Uh, don't fail to report suspicious signs. Uh, that's part, I think, of a long-term strategy of community involvement and engagement. I still think we have to take advantage of the moment to the extent we can, however uphill it is. But I Absolutely. certainly agree that in the long term, uh, the idea of neighbors noticing that, that neighbors have guns unsafely stored or strange kids who go with them to the firing range and saying something about it could make a long-term difference. And just to, just to promote the research for one moment, because we have reliable, valid measures of collective, collective efficacy, we could make a map, we did it of Chicago, of collective efficacy for the United States. It would have census tracts marked, you know, and so forth, just like the weather map. Because people have also proposed having maps of, gun, of homes with guns in them. And then there's a lot of pushback saying, I have a right not to be identified as a gun owner. And that's an interesting clash between sort of a right of privacy, the First Amendment, and the Second Amendment all tangled up. I think we had a, another question in the audience here. You'll just wait for the microphone now. Okay. I am Israeli. And from the age of 18 and up, we all go to the army. I was in the army for two years. Mm -hmm. So we all held guns in our hand. What I learned in the army is how to use guns and when to use them, and also how not to use them and when not to use them. When you leave the army, you have to return the guns. And then if you want to hold one as a private citizen, there are licensing criteria. Would licensing criteria be consistent with gun control? This is one question. The other one is the kid who, who uh, 
committed this kind of killing, he was an Asperger. Asperger syndrome is on the autistic spectrum, except that they learn very well. They get all A's and they're very quiet. And I, what Professor Ernst says, that uh, violence is a learned behavior, but they are better learners than, than anybody else. They lack uh, the social emotional uh, context. They cannot empathize and they cannot uh, really predict the consequences of their behavior. Typical Asperger. So the mother. What? The qu I'm just trying to follow the question that you're that you're bringing. Uh, well, so the qu so the question is whether when a one gives a, a gun or provides a gun to a family, to whether it's possible to check all the members of the family whether they have mental illness. So I think I mean two very good and related <coughs> questions. One, you know, how good do we do of just having standards and licensing, and two, into the mental health issue. Does does licensing touch on that? Well, the current licensing laws are are almost useless. I mean, the registration requirements are ridden with exceptions. They don't apply to sales over the internet. They don't apply to gun shows. So universal requirements of registration are an absolute minimum. But the idea that in addition to having to register the gun and having significant background check, that you really need to show that you are a safe user of a gun so that there is a licensing process. That's something that we barely have in the United States, but it's not the Second Amendment's fault. Even the Supreme Court's decisions uh, in 2008 and 2010 made clear that the right to have a gun for self-defense does not include a right to be free of licensing and regulation of a fairly comprehensive sort so that there is no constitutional obstacle. The obstacle is cultural and profoundly uh, political. And I think it's an interesting idea that in addition to having a check on yourself, there should be a check on the people in your household. Mm -hmm. They are the people who may well get the gun and engage in mass slaughter. Uh, it may be that Lenz's mother went through a check and that she was perfectly sane and normal and had no difficulties, but if the process also exposed things about her son, that would have been relevant. But I think on the other side, we also don't want to ostracize everybody with Asperger's or everyone who has seen a mental health professional. It's hard enough now to have people feel comfortable seeing the mental health professionals they ought to see. So I would resist the idea that we should have a national registry of people with Asperger's or people with mental health problems and a map of the kind you described with a sort of mental health distribution. So it's a very difficult balance. Um, I would just, just say that uh, every, virtually every other developed country has uh, national licensure laws. We don't, but some states in the United States have very good laws. Uh, one of the problems for them is that crime guns move. Um, and whereas that probably helps in terms of suicide because those guns don't move in accidents, but crime guns move and they move uh, from states with very weak laws uh, to states with very strong laws. And it still helps to have a strong law, but it doesn't help as much as it would uh, if we could, we could get all the states to have reasonable laws. Just a comment <clears throat> that Asperger's, is, the American psychiatrists have made Asperger's syndrome obsolete. So it's now part of autism spectrum disorder, not called Asperger's. 
And there's no heightened risk of suicide associated with Asperger's or autism. Uh, so we have to remember that, the, the, that this guy in Sandy Hook <coughs> killed himself as well. Right. So these are related facts, but not contributing right. necessary. Uh, I think we're going to take a question from the online audience now. Thanks, Scott. We have a lot of people participating online, so I'm going to just try to give a flavor of where they're coming from. Um, this is from someone in Sydney, Australia. After Australia's worst mass shooting in Port Arthur, Australia implemented a gun buyback program that I worked on. Even though it was clear that not all guns would be turned in, the long-term data shows that taking guns out of circulation has been associated with a significant reduction in gun-related deaths and injuries. My question is, are initiatives to reduce gun violence too often dismissed on the basis that they can't solve the whole problem? Why is it so hard to achieve acceptance of incremental improvements? The answer certainly is that many initiatives are dismissed because they will make only an incremental difference. And it's hard because the intensity of people who are afraid of any control exceeds the intensity of people who can get behind limited control. But the Australian buyback program was mandatory. That is, it didn't achieve universal elimination of assault weapons, but you really were required. It was a kind of eminent domain. You were required to turn in an assault weapon and you would be compensated. Uh, there is no chance that that would be enacted here. And indeed, that's one of the, uh, one of the sort of horribles in the parade that the people who resist gun control put uh, in front of us. They say that whatever you do, it will be a step toward the government mandatorily confiscating everyone's guns. So I would remind people that that's not on parade here. Uh, and without that mandatory buyback, it's not entirely clear how effective the Australian program would have been. Um, one of the things I think, uh, two of the points I would make about uh, the Australian uh, changes in policy, which included lots of other things, right, besides the buyback, uh, was that it really was an incredibly successful policy. They haven't had a mass shooting since then. They had a lot before then. The other thing is the reason it could happen was because they responded to a mass shooting, and who responded was a conservative prime minister who stood up and said enough is enough. And I think in the United States we are waiting for a brave conservative Republican to step up and say enough is enough. We care more about our children than I care about the NRA's backing. There've and once that happens. There have been a couple. Uh, uh, the, but I think those are conservative Democrats who have stepped up. No, there's, well, there's okay. uh, enough. Okay. I just want to say uh, something to the international folks in the, in the online community. The U.S. is really uh, quite exceptional in that uh, we don't have a strong federal government on most of our regulatory issues. Uh, we weren't known as the United States of America until, our, until the First World War. We were universally considering ourselves the United States in America. Um, we have 50 states plus the District of Columbia, 3,033 counties, 56,000 towns, townships, and municipalities. There's a patchwork quilt of regulations, it's very difficult for us to have a unified national reaction. Uh, I guess my history is a little different. I think it was when we got rid of the Articles of Confederation that we started <laughs> calling it the United States of America. Congress did try to pass a law, and it did pass a law making it a crime to have a gun near a school. And it was the United States Supreme Court in a case called Lopez by a vote of five to four that said that's unconstitutional. So there is a sense of national unity, 
but there is also a strongly federalist impulse in the current conservative Roberts Court. Was there another question from the online world? Or? There are a lot of them. Okay. <laughs> um, here's someone from the States. The nation the States has of or in America? <laughs> in, in America. The nation has previously implemented a ban on new sales of assault weapons. Some studies indicate that the ban was not successful in changing gun-related murder rates. No change when implemented or expired. Why would a renewal of the ban lead to a different outcome now? Um, well, the, the ban was so riddled with loopholes that one couldn't expect to find much of anything, and particularly you wouldn't expect to find a big effect on overall homicide rates since everyone knows that only about 2% of homicides are with assault weapons. What the ban would have had some effect on would have been mass shootings. Um, and there it's hard to tell uh, what would have happened, but uh, it, it was so easy to get around the ban that, yeah, I think the, the ban did not have uh, much of an effect. Right. I mean, for one thing, a lot of the definitions of assault weapons are such that if you don't have a grenade launcher on your gun, it's not an assault <laughs> weapon. I mean, you, we, we, need we need a comprehensive regulation. I think we're going we're gonna to move it along now to some practical suggestions from, the, from our panelists. But bef and I, as a segue into that, I guess I wanted to follow up on a point that you, you opened with, David. You talked about the, the idea of gun storage and safe gun storage and, and the influence that can happen. And I think that when you, when you look at issues like that, you have a balance of, you know, there's the argument to keep the gun unloaded, trigger locked, locked cabinet, safe, not going to be used, fall into un, you know, unexpected hands. On the other hand, you have the, the argument of this gun is owned maybe for defensive purposes. You know, if you listen to, to Wayne LaPierre's comments from the NRA, um, you know, he talked about the scenario of the glass breaking at 3 o'clock in the morning. And I think many, you know, some gun owners, maybe many gun owners might say, well, I need to have this weapon in a place where I can use it in an emergency when I need it. How do you balance those two? Um, one, of the, one of the things is you try to look at the science, and there's no sort of evidence at all suggesting that having the gun that you can get within two seconds matters more than the gun you can get within t 10 seconds. Because uh, if you really care that much, you can have a locked gun, and you can unlock that gun very, 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 very fast. Um, there is a huge amount of evidence that having an unsecured gun leads to all sorts of death in the family. Um, we've done lots of studies about self-defense gun use, and what we found is when people talk about self-defense gun use, it turns out often, more often than not, to be escalating arguments, which is not the perception that most people have when you say the word self-defense gun use. You know, and public education is critical here. A lot of people don't know that a gun in the home, in terms of well-documented data, is more likely to result in their own death than to result in their self-protection. And we have to resist not only the kind of know-nothing attitude of people who say you can't regulate at all or Big Brother will come and rip away your guns, but also the attitude that shuts down public education. Florida, for example, passed a law that made it an offense for a doctor to advise his patient or her patient that having guns in the home might be dangerous to their health. Now that law, thank goodness, was struck down by a federal district court under the First Amendment. But it turns out that snuck into the Affordable Care Act, there are also limitations on the ability uh, to give public health advice to people about the dangers of guns. So we have to look not only at the standard, the, the usual suspects in terms of loopholes in gun regulations, we also have to look at attempts to shut down 
information which can change the culture. And, and that's just to emphasize that, the, the lead public health agency, the Centers for Disease Control, was a, under such attack from the gun lobby that now it refuses to do any work at all yeah. about firearms. Mm -hmm. uh, it won't even say the word firearms in, in its <coughs> sacred halls. And, uh, and that's, that's just crazy. What we, you know, in public health, in public health, if it was your, in your safety to have a gun in the home, people in public health would try to get you to own a gun. Uh, but what evidence we have is that it's it's really against your self-interest. And we really have to understand, is that true for everybody? Is it just true for some people? There's so much stuff we don't know. What are some of the steps that, that public health authorities and just, you know, that just society at large, at large can take to, to communicate those messages? Well, <laughs> um, I, I think uh, one of the things is for people to become more educated, but I think that the key thing is, is to unite with in, in little groups that, that try to do something and to get uh, the Rotary Club to try to do things. The, everybody has to get, every group has to say, what can we do? Uh, and so, for example, one of the things that somebody here has been pushing rightfully, I think, is, is uh, that reporters um, should change somewhat. For example, in Massachusetts now, when there's a killing, you say, who killed who? Um, when there's a motor vehicle crash now, we talk about was there alcohol involved and was, were people wearing their seatbelts? And that says over and over again, these are normative things. You should not drink. You should always wear your seatbelt. Over and over, you see that. What we want to see in Boston is the reporters asking first, where did the gun come from? Uh, not who shot whom, but why do these 17-year-old kids in the inner city have guns? They were not born with the guns. Uh, they did not and, and, uh, you know, steal the guns because very few people in Boston have guns. Some adult made money bringing the gun into the city, and who is that adult? And that's who we should be thinking about, not the children who adolescents behave badly often, and let them fight with their fists, and then they'll grow up to be crazy people like we are. Uh, but <laughs> don't, don't let them kill each other. You know, and when you're trying to find out where the gun came from, it would help if there were requirements that guns essentially bear fingerprints. I mean, we could use smart technology to deal with the problem. Uh, we could have a requirement that guns that are manufactured be smart guns. That is, that they can't shoot in certain areas where they are essentially sort of deactivated. There are all sorts of things that could be done that are somewhat novel and that the <coughs> National Rifle Association hasn't yet organized its mind around. Um, Professor Earls, one thing, I mean, in the wake of, of Newtown, there's been a lot of concern about, about children, everything from, you know, their exposure to, to violent television shows and video games to just, you know, steps that can be taken to, to get them involved in, in, in the discussion and to, you know, discuss their fears, to, you know, discuss what they're aware of and to educate them. What are, what are the sort of practical things that, you know, schools and parents and, and others can do to tackle this? Well, talking with children. <clears throat> is is very important, and I think it's important to talk to children in groups, not just one-on-one, -on -one. because groups <clears throat> facilitate trust and openness and communicating things that you might not want to say just to your parents. And so I think that part of monitoring Sandy Hook uh, in the future is going to be to keep the, to keep the conversation alive with how the children feel violence and how they adapt to it and what 
what kind of what kind of solutions they have. And, and what should that. what should parents be be worried about in, in listening? Well, to you know, it's a difficult <coughs> it's a difficult problem that we we were interested in proving showing a cause effect relationship between exposure to violence and violent behavior, <coughs> but could not do a randomized experiment. I mean, it would be unethical to expose children to violence. Uh, so we did something called a propensity stratification analysis, where we matched children on 150 variables. The only thing that was different about pairs of children was that one, one was exposure to gun violence <coughs> and the other wasn't. And we were able to demonstrate in that pseudo-experiment that exposure to violence doubled the risk, almost tripled the risk, of that child becoming violent himself over a two-year period. When we think about toy guns and the kinds of toy guns that children are exposed to, video games and so forth, that this same ethical problem keeps coming up. I mean, would we as experimenters, as scientists, want to expose children to these weapons, to these uh, video games and so forth? I mean, would, would we get parental <coughs> permission to do it? And uh, would children's assent be required? And would children want to do it themselves? So I think there's a lot we need to learn. But there are ethical issues in the way of learning those things, because as a society, we, we do believe that this is potentially something that's risky, video games, toy guns, and so forth. So. What I would like to emphasize is that what li limited data we have indicates that our children are not more violent than the children of other developed countries. Uh, and yes, probably we should do something about violent video games, there's no question, but what distinguishes us is that our children kill each other. And why do they kill each other? Because they have guns. That's, that's what makes us different, and it makes us horrifically different. And the rest of the developed world cannot understand us. They say, how can you let your children die? What are you doing? How can this happen? Now, Professor King, um, excuse me, Professor Tribe, early on you, um, you commented about you know, this being maybe a, a moment for an opportunity for change, for, for things to happen. What, um, what's the legal debate ahead? You know, what, what should we be expecting to hear about and what should we be expecting our, our congresspersons to be Well, we'll certainly hear the invocation of the Second Amendment uh, any time a regulation is proposed. Uh, and the Second Amendment has been used sort of promiscuously. There was a decision by Judge Posner in the Seventh Circuit on December 11th saying that a ban on carrying concealed weapons violates the Second Amendment. You don't have to have a concealed weapon in public for self-defense. The core right that the Supreme Court affirmed is a right of self-defense, not only in the home but elsewhere. But the idea that you have to be able to carry a concealed weapon and that that can't be stringently regulated is pretty wild. But we can expect those debates whenever a gun regulation is proposed. That is, the Second Amendment, though I see it as our friend in a certain way, because it provides an answer to the fear that anything you do will slip down the slope toward total gun elimination. At the same time, it is a weapon used by the other side. It's not only our shield, it's their sword. And you name it, whatever regulation is proposed to reenact the assault weapons ban with less loopholes, to have comprehensive control of the ammunition itself, the hollow bullets, uh, it will all be met with litigation. The key thing that the Supreme Court did in 2008 and 2010 
is open a Pandora's box of litigation. But we don't have to be afraid of lawsuits. They're going to come, uh, and we have powerful arguments to make. It is likely not the Second Amendment, but the political landscape that's going to make it difficult to get things done. Professor King, why don't you um, talk a little bit about that landscape and what we can expect out of the White House panel chaired by Vice President Biden and what's likely to, to happen in the Congress that we have today? Uh, well, the White House panel will report in a month or so, maybe less. Uh, it'll be a couple of suggestions, presumably around high-capacity magazines. I wouldn't anticipate that much happens directly from that. Uh, I want to underscore that elected representatives respond to activists, people who are activated. Everyone in this room cares about something. You are an activist waiting to be activated. Everyone listening is an activist waiting to be activated. Uh, and if this is something that you care deeply about, then you have to become involved, right? Uh, it's not enough just to complain that policy isn't changing or social norms aren't changing. Nothing changes until you and your colleagues, your friends, get activated together. Um, so complaining isn't enough. Great. I think in Congress what we are more likely to see is on a different dimension. Uh, it's the Judiciary Committee in the House and the Senate that will be handling the gun laws. Uh, and there is an interesting constellation, constellation of uh, forces now that will move towards a national ID card. If we're going to have a stringent, strict, believable uh, national registry and background checks, um, there is a political coalition that will support a national ID card. The national ID card also supported by uh, some voting rights activists. Um, uh, certainly the Homeland Security uh, community is behind a national ID card. I think that's the kind of thing that will be thrown in here, will fracture both liberals and conservatives and redefine the issue. Right. And immigration will... Immigration is going to be part of the solution. Right. So to the extent that immigration is high on our, uh, on our list of things to be concerned about, um, and certainly gun violence, um, the national ID card will be within a month or two something we're all talking about. Okay. But, but, but we should know that, note that immigrants typically have much lower violence rates than native than, than people in the United sure. States. It just takes them a generation or so to, to get up to our speed yeah. in terms of being violent. Speaking English. I'd like to, um, at this point, maybe bring, it, bring the conversation back to you guys here, here in the room. Um, further questions for our panel? Uh, just wait, they'll bring you the microphone in a moment. Down, down in the front here, sorry. Thank you. Um, we, I, I really like the idea that was brought up about the role of media and covering crime. I want to just address maybe to the moderator the question of the role of media in covering the debate. Um, the debate is often viewed as two sides, the NRA and gun control. But what we really have is the NRA, which is a gun manufacturers association, if you look at their actual funding, and everyone else on the other side. You have the police, you have public health, you have this whole side, but it's seen as two equal sides. Um, and related to that is how um, reporters, and maybe it's a question of people getting up to speed because they haven't been covering it, um, actually cover research. Um, this morning, and not to pick on one media outlet, but this morning on NPR I heard a report where, they, where the reporter, and then it was backed up by the, um, by the host, um, said, well, no study has ever shown that any gun control legislation has had any impact, yet we're still talking about them. Clearly a talking point directly from the NRA. How is this in so-called liberal media 
considered an acceptable way to cover the story. Well, I won't presume to, to weigh in on behalf of, of the media, but rather turn the, turn the spotlight on, on back to you guys. What, um, what are we doing wrong? As, as the press, what can we be doing better in covering this? Um, so one of the big things the press does is always wants to make, make it a he said, she said. Uh, and it, 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 that's what they used to do with climate change. And I think in terms of the, the gun debate, um, there's uh, th uh, really two people who are cited continuously who aren't very good researchers on one side, and then you have 200 people on the other side, and you're sort of one-on-one. -on -one, and it's like, no, this is not what the research is showing. This, gives a very distorted view of we don't really know anything and we know a lot. And I mean, schools of journalism obviously have some responsibility here. Their sense of neutrality is, you know, someone says the earth is flat. Well, it, you know, there's a flat earth society and then there are the others. But there is sometimes a truth of the matter. And the NRA, I mean, interestingly, the members of the NRA are in favor of all sorts of gun control. It's the leadership and the alliance between the leadership and the gun manufacturers. And it was in 2005 that a law was passed immunizing the gun manufacturers from tort liability for the health costs that they impose on society. It's not so clear where Congress got the authority to pass that law. Maybe we should take advantage of the state's rights Supreme Court to challenge that law. Uh, another one from the audience? Maybe we'll go to this side of the room. Um, there's been a lot of focus on regulation and on changing social norms. And uh, Professor Tribe had mentioned that in the ACO, for example, there is there are limitations on what healthcare providers can do in terms of education. But one of the things that really strikes me is the cost associated with gun violence and the co cost both directly in terms of treating injuries and also the long-term costs in terms of the impact of trauma on individuals, on communities, and how those lead to other health outcomes. So right now, as we're in an environment where there's a great focus on reducing costs and how we can reduce healthcare costs, how we can reduce costs across the board, is, that, is there an opportunity to make that a greater part of the debate and to provide extra, you know, extra ammunition for those who are you know, proponents of gun control to talk about how <coughs> we can actually have a tremendous cost savings while also respecting... So essentially, do we, do we take and pull it into the, deba the budget debate? Everyone wants pull to talk into, budget? Exactly, exactly. Budget. Is there a budgetary implication? Um, sort of yes and no. The, the, the problem is a lot of the real costs uh, aren't directly borne uh, by, by uh, the people who are making the decisions. And so uh, street crime really has a horrible effect on everybody uh, in the community. And so your kids don't go out and they get obese, but the long, it's going to be a long-term effect that now you have fatter kids because they're afraid to go out and they don't get any exercise. You're not going to see that sort of immediately. The, the medical costs of, of gun violence aren't that great. Uh, because a lot of people die, and that's a the cost of very little. Um, so the medical costs, I mean, aren't, aren't zero, but compared to the cost of treating the elderly, it's it's minuscule. Uh, but what the real costs are is on society, where you can destroy whole communities, and uh, then you can destroy the tax base in those communities and so forth. But that's, again, it's hard for the the uh, they say the federal government to see that effect immediately. Well, a good analogy is early childhood education. Been numerous studies now that have reported the investment in early childhood education results in not only healthier children who learn better, but children who are less violent and, and, and less delinquent. So taking that as an economic issue would be interesting to apply the same economic thinking to uh, your question. You know, you can't quantify everything. 
And in our society, we've gotten used to the idea that sort of if you can't put a number on it, it isn't real. But a lot of the most severe costs uh, are costs that really can't be measured in dollars and cents. You slaughter 20 children. What did that cost the country? The, the tragedy, the grief. You can't put a dollar value on it. But I would say most of us would pay quite a bit to reduce the chances of that happening again. I think there was, was there another question in the, in the corner back here? Uh, as an immigrant to this country, uh, one of the things that you have to understand and uh, answer correctly is uh, there's a question in the, in the exam there that says, uh, would you ever take gun against an American? I can assure you that if you say yes in that question, you might as well forget your citizenship. I, Japanese constitution was drafted uh, or extracted from an uh, American constitution. And in their treaties, they say that uh, no Japanese should take gun against the citizen or against themselves. I don't remember reading that there have been any viol I've never been to Japan. I don't know whether I would ever go there. But I've never remembered or seen where a Japanese has actually taken a gun and shoot another Japanese. The killing of 20 children in Connecticut is a very devastating situation. The question I have, there are three questions. What is going on? Who and why? The what is answered because we know it's gone. The who is the people that take the gun against themselves or against innocent children. The third question is why? Why is NRA more powerful than American Constitution? I guess that's my question. Why? Why can't NRA be regulated? Okay, good, good question. The, the, the NRA, why do they compare, you know, wield the influence they do? And what about his point of earlier of should we look at the NRA? I mean, any other trade organization you tend to cover as a journalist, as a representative of, the, of an industry. Um, and is the NRA a membership organization, an activist grassroots organization? Is it a trade group? Group Is it a hybrid of the two? How should we be thinking about that? Well, the NRA is a membership-based organization, but the membership costs are subsidized by gun manufacturers. No question about that. And um, we have an interest group society that's dominated by manufacturing interests, not by citizens groups. Uh, I'll just give you three quick examples about the foundation of uh, certain groups. The uh, American Automobile Association was started by, funded by Ford Motor Company. Uh, the American Association of Retired People, AARP, was started by, funded by Colonial Penn Life Insurance Company. They've both, they've emerged into being different things. Uh, the National Rifle Association began in a very infant way in 1871, funded by the Department of the Army. And then after the, um, uh, after the Spanish-American War, where marksmanship was a real problem, especially among um, young men from urban areas, the Department of the Army flooded the National Rifle Association and created marksmanship schools in urban areas such that there were at least 200 of them by 1903. So where groups start uh, is a very interesting question. Um, now, why aren't there groups out there to uh, oppose the National Rifle Association? It's hard to get people organized in that it's way. It's about money. I mean, the First Amendment, as it has been construed by this Supreme Court, is more to blame than the Second Amendment. That is, it's Citizens United and all that it represents. It is the fact that money talks. 
and it's not easy to measure in partisan terms, but it's quite clear that people on both sides of the aisle in Congress owe more to their funders than to their constituents. That has got to be changed, whether by a constitutional <laughs> amendment or something, but that is at the heart of the problem. So that I'm really glad you asked your question. The focus of this discussion has been more on an amendment, one number too high. I just want to say that on, behind us is the word forum. And, and people want to believe that politics is a forum. A representative republic is a forum. Some people want to believe that it's an arena where we're sitting on the sides and watching these folks be combatants. But very often, especially with large interest groups, we are not a forum, we are not an arena. Politics is a market, mm -hmm. and it's an unfair marketplace. Mm -hmm. I think we have time for, for one more in the, in, in the room here. I'll take... Um, Professor Hemingway or any of the distinguished panelists. Um, David, as you know, the work we do through Citizens for Safety finds us encountering too many parents in urban centers who are suffering just like the Newton parents because they've lost children to gun violence. These children aren't dying in mass shootings but from crimes committed with handguns sold illegally on our streets. Are there loopholes in the law that you would close to protect these children as well? I mean, there's lots of loopholes in our laws. Uh, one of the big loopholes, of course, is uh, that we don't have universal background checks. Um, something else I would love to see is a national one-gun-per-month law, which would really uh, reduce gun trafficking uh, by reducing the profitability of going down to South Carolina and buying 20 guns and bringing them up and selling them on the streets. So I think there's lots of things, sensible things, that, that we could do that would make a real difference. Uh, and we need to do them. Uh, from a public health standpoint, it's like, why are we doing nothing? And, and maybe this is a good way to, to, to close this down, maybe from each of the rest of you, briefly. One brief, sensible, practical thing that we haven't talked about yet that will, will help. Well, we've talked about it, but I just want to rep replicate it, resonate it, you know, for the audience. And that is the, the fact that researchers are handcuffed by federal policy. And I think a very appropriate thing for the media to do is to expose that. Because there are really fundamental questions about our society, about guns, that we can't answer because of this. I guess the main thing I would say is that every day more children are killed in the United States than were killed uh, at Sandy Hook Elementary, and yet they are anonymous. We don't know who they were. To the parents of those children, to their brothers and their sisters, to the children themselves, it is the same tragedy. And I wish that our media would take it as a sacred responsibility to bring those individual tragedies to light so that we don't have to wait until another Sandy Hook before we have another moment of opportunity. Mm. And I, I guess I would close by noticing that um, most of the vitality in American democracy is at the local level, to some extent at the state level. We have 535 members of the Congress. We have a president and a vice president. But across the country, does anyone want to guess how many elected officials, not appointed, but elected officials we have? 511,000 elected mm. officials in the United Order States. Order of magnitude off. They're, they're your neighbors. <laughs> they're your neighbors. They're your friends. They're people you went to school with. 
Um, gun violence is a problem society-wide. We have elected representatives society-wide. You have to reach out to them as your neighbors and your school committee members, and then it will have an impact at a national level. Great. Well, uh, on behalf of the Harvard School of Public Health and, and Reuters News, I want to thank all of you for participating. I want to thank all of you, both in the room and uh, who are listening online. I think this was a helpful discussion, and I hope it energizes your thinking going forward.